I got a two-year-old at home. I need diapers and wipes, right? So I, I did the whole thing where it's like, hey, subscribe to my monthly service and you're going to save five bucks a box. Well, dude, I hate to say this, but I had a house for a few days because my diapers didn't come. Yeah, man. <laughs> What will e-commerce look like when the pandemic is over? What does fast shipping mean anymore? And does anyone actually like returns? That's some of what we're going to figure out. This is BoxCast, a conversation about current events, culture, and e-commerce logistics from Pitney Bowes. We've got Sam and John on. This is VJ. We're all from Pitney Bowes. We're going to start talking through how the pandemic... The craziness of the of the last twelve months in the U.S. and across the world has impacted e-commerce logistics. That's the world we play in. I want to throw out a couple of stats for you guys, and if you were to guess, what would you say that if you asked the percentage of U.S. consumers whose income has gone up since the beginning of the pandemic? What, what would you guess? It's an interesting one to answer, but I'll, I'll take a stab. I'm going to say somewhere in the 35 to 40% range. It's like 14%. <laughs> and it's never gone over like 15% in the last, like, since we started. Right, fair, both. fair. So th- th- what's interesting here, and this is kind of sets sets the tone for, for kind of where we're starting off in the conversation, is household income for most U.S. consumers either stay the same. That's about 50% of U.S. consumers. It's about stay the same. And for about a third it's it's gone down right at about a third if you average it out and right i think the the, the most who have said that it, their household income has gone up has been about 15 percent. it's been it's been south of 15 percent throughout most of the pandemic and so you've got that you sit you set that aside for a second and then we look at the savings rate right because the savings rate is the opposite of you know all of our clients are in e-commerce the more consumers spend, the better off they are, our, our clients are. And by extension, you know, the, the better Pitney Bowes' business does. If, if you look at the savings rate, which is how much consumers are saving, which is the opposite of spending, I won't make you guys guess on this one, but it's in the last 12 months been at a historic high, higher than it's been in the last two economic downturns combined. What's the number, VJ? Yeah, it, it spiked back in, in March, April, at like 34% savings rate. So more than a third of, of household income was put away in savings, which is astonishing. That's on average, right? It's on average. And there's a lot of folks that live paycheck to paycheck. So you gotta, you gotta imagine that they're, they don't have much to save. It's now kind of rebalanced down. It's, there's an uptick at the moment. And by the way, I'm getting this data from, from the uh, Federal Reserve. It's now settling in at 14%, which is still higher, substantively higher. The, the, during the, the last recession back in 2008, 2009, savings rate never got above 8%. So, so that's interesting, VJ, because that's U.S. specific data, correct? Yeah. So you don't live in the U.S. No, now. but I kid you not, not even 20 minutes ago, I read something that came across my feed the one of the deputy governors at the Bank of Canada just issued a report, and the report says, I'm not going to use percentages here, I'll just use actual dollar figures. It said that since the onset of the pandemic, the average per capita 
savings is up by $5,800. That's $5,800 of extra money that these people have put away in the midst of the pandemic. The article goes on to speak about, you know, where they're going to spend their money, et cetera. But it's interesting because think about a household of four or five people. That's like 20 grand. That's per capita. That's per head. So four four people, that's like over $20,000 of savings that have been stashed away in a sock somewhere. It's probably waiting to be spent. Do Canadians still use socks? We do. We do use socks. Adidas socks with the, with the, with the old school stripes, for sure. <laughs> so, but, you know, what's interesting, like the narrative out there has been instead of spending money on restaurants and bars and travel, consumers have been spending money on home improvement. Right. But this savings rate indicates that that's actually not so much the case. I mean, yeah, there is a nominal amount of increase. You look at Home Depot's earnings or Lowe's earnings statements. There is an improvement in the business, Bed Bath and Beyond. They're all doing better, but there is a huge amount of untapped spending still yet to come. So where I wanted to kind of take this is, as we now see kind of line of sight to vaccines, which, by the way, as of just in the last week, we've got a vaccine tracker, right? We've got an increase in just the last, last week or two in the number or the percentage of, of U.S. consumers who've taken the vaccine. It's gone from about 16 to 18% of U.S. consumers overall, right? Another 45% planning on taking it. So that's about half planning, about 20, 21% not planning on taking it. And there's still about 16% unsure. So, you see the majority have either taken it or are planning on taking it. And and the narrative is, the word from, from the federal government is, from the U.S. federal government anyway, that, that vaccines will get to every American by the summer. So what happens to e-commerce post-vaccine? So I'll, I'll let you guys pontificate. John, you, you, you first. What's your sense of like, what's going to happen post-pandemic? What are the, what are the uh, online shopping behavior is going to look like? Yeah, sure, sure. I'll I'll opine here for a bit. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, so I've been in e-commerce a long time. And if you are familiar with the the e-commerce percent to total curve, right, and you've watched it for the last 20 years, what you will notice is a very repeating trend quarter over quarter over quarter where e-commerce percentage is usually higher in, you know, the first and second quarters kind of dropping and ultimately in the fourth, it it always drops to the lowest percentage of total retail, right? And the reason for that is that denominator picks up, right? Like holiday people step in uh, offline and they shop more. And it's this this is as you know consistent as it gets. I encourage anyone listening to go go check it out. It's been happening for 20 years. And even in the pandemic, in this Q4 with less offline stores available than than any other you know kind of previous Q4 it happened again right if you look at that percentage it peaked in Q2 when you know what we would call the spring peak actually uh, took hold last year right like the percentage was like 28% highest ever by a long shot but it it started to dial back some and it dialed back more in Q4 just just like it always has and so for me, I think it's going to be really interesting to see when we start to lap, when we get to Q2 this year, right? Like, what is that, you know, percentage going to be? And of course, as, as you said, the vaccine, you know, I, look, I think there are 
there are a lot of people that have been introduced to, to, to e-commerce now and a lot of people that were using it before that maybe now branched into categories that they weren't shopping. That's going to continue. It's not going to go away. The numerator in this equation is jump and it's it's not coming back down, right? But but I do think that the denominator, we, sh- we should not rule it out, right? Like even if people just want to get out, Christ, I, I want to get out, right? Like th- there is going to be some people that just want, when they feel comfortable are going to want to go out and go to the mall. It probably won't happen as much nearly as it used to. But I do think there will be, you know, a, a tick up of offline shopping, but it's not going to be the same as it once was, right? And it's just, so So for me, I think that Q2 will be a real moment to see once we kind of lap what, what those percentages shake out to be. That's interesting. Sam, from, from your perspective, you, I mean, you're talking to clients like hourly right now, and what are they asking? What are they thinking in terms of the, what's going to shake out post-vaccine and distribution, herd immunity, whatever? First of all, I, I agree with with everything John just said, and 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 I want to I'm going to share something uh, from my personal life in in just a second. But to answer your question off the hopper here, I think it all depends, VJ, on the the types of goods that the clients are selling. You know, we got some clients that are selling you know cosmetics and makeup and things things of that nature, and and they're not really knocking on the door too much, asking about what is to come. But then there's those merchants that are, I'm going to call them multi-product, and they sell a variety of different products, and they're 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 reaching out to a variety of different audiences. And these are the ones, at least from my conversations, that have a little bit of concern. And they're asking questions which are difficult to answer, and we do the best that we can. And they're asking questions like, hey, Pitney, you, know, you deal with X number of clients. Can you share with me any insights or trends that you're seeing across similar merchants in, in the same space? You know, are they getting more volume? Are they getting less volume? Because I think they're trying to figure out a way to benchmark their performance uh, against industry peers. And look, there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of research out there that they can do on their own, but you know, natively we we handle a lot of these similar types of clients. And, and, and what I'm deducing from that is that their concern for the merchants asking those questions is that they have concern that once the, the vaccine is full onslaught and everyone's got it and everyone's feeling comfortable and masks are coming off. And to John's point, a certain number of people start making it, you know, back into the into the shopping centers, that they're going to lose out on that. So what they're really trying to figure out is how do they continue to capitalize on the success that they've had over the last 12 months? And some of them are, are really thinking about how do they pivot their strategy to position themselves to still be relevant to those consumers, even in the face of a changing way that the, that the consumers are shopping. Honestly, it's a mixed bag of questions. But again, I want to restate the ones that are asking the hardest questions are the ones that are in those industries or in those verticals that could potentially go by the wayside if everyone goes back into the plaza or into the mall or into the strip mall or whatever you want to call it. So it's just, it's interesting. I want to support something that Capilo said and, and I'm going to refer to my parents. My parents are in their 70s, okay? They're retired. To them, going out to the plaza, to the grocery store, it's their thing. Like, there's nothing else for them to do, especially here in Canada in the winter. It's cold. My parents can't go outside and plant tomatoes. Like, it's just not going to happen. So, so for them, going out, you know, it's a thing. Oh, we're going to go grocery shopping today. Or we're going to go to the mall. Or we're going to go here. Well, when COVID hit, you know, my parents got scared. And they started staying home. And, and then my dad started shopping online. My dad doesn't shop online. He's old school. He goes to the store. 
he's the type of guy that tries to negotiate a deal like in a Walmart. Like it just <laughs> that's who he is, right? But all kidding aside, he started shopping online. And when he realized how easy it was to get stuff delivered and then returned, he then said, Let me try, let me try my groceries as well. So so then you got guys like my dad and my mom, they will never go back to the store ever. Because they have this convenience now that they just it dawned upon them. So I think kind of back to Capital's point, there certainly is going to be a number of people that go back. But I think there's those that have become accustomed to, and I think they feel pampered by this experience that they now have that maybe they didn't have before. And, and I'm telling you, dude, my parents, 75 and 77, they were never going back to a retail store ever, period. You know, what's, what's interesting is that, you know, we did this this research on, on Boxpole recently, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it aligns with the oldest consumers have discovered something that the rest of us discovered, you know, a decade ago, right? Which is online is, is super easy. But also there's millennials who are now kind of frazzled parents, a lot of millennials, the older millennials. And they too are like, you know, look, I'm too busy. I got too much going on. I, I don't have time to go shop in the store. I got my, my online habits down. I got a schedule. I know when to order things and when they're going to show up. I'm good. I'm good. So, you know, the interesting stat, I'll, I'll, I'll quiz you guys again here on this one. So we asked, once the pandemic ends, how many of you are going to shop more online? How, are you going to shop less online? Right. We asked consumers this. And same with in-store. Are you going to shop more or less in-store? Let me lay out the questions here. If, if you had to guess, what percentage, and Cap, we'll start with you, said we're going to shop more online after the pandemic ends versus now versus now during the pandemic. Yeah, maybe it's a cop out, but I'm hanging around that 50% number, but that's what I'm going with again. Sam, how about you? What's your call? I think it's probably a third. A third's going to shop more online. Third's going to shop less in store. It's really interesting because it's the numbers right in between. It's 42% are going to shop more online. Now here's the kicker. Only 12% are going to shop less. So you net that out, right? Because everybody else is saying that they're going to be the same. Right. So they're a wash. So 30% more than less. Oh, so I was right with a third. There you go. Yeah. 30% more than less, but 42% overall are going to say, are going to shop more, more than today, which is crazy. Like how much more can you shop online? Now, now if you look at in store, if you, if you had to guess more versus less, what would you guys say, Cap? I'm going the other way. I'm going to say 25 ish. 25 ish more? Yeah. How about you, Sam? I'm going with 25 as well. So it's 37% said more and 26% said less. So it's it's an 11 percentage point difference towards the more. So it's a much, much smaller margin, right? 30% difference on the online more and only 11% more on in-store shopping, which implies a significant permanent shift and maybe even acceleration in some categories over to, to online shopping post-pandemic. It's crazy. Right. I mean, again, how, how much more can, can folks shop online? I mean, it's like, I thought we kind of reached the limit, but. All right. So next topic, we're going to talk about the, the perception of speed. So we just got out of this holiday peak, a tremendous amount of parcel volume flowing through delivery networks and true over the course of the entire pandemic, Shipments and deliveries were slower than the normal. Amazon, Walmart, everybody was slowed down. 
consumers overall said that their expectations had also gotten slower. Like they'd lowered their expectations on what fast was. So if you asked consumers before the pandemic, what fast meant, what, like how, how many days does it mean to, to, to be fast on delivery? How many days in transit? Consumers would have said like one, I think it was 1.9 days. The average now is 2.3 days. It's, it's gone up by a half day in, in what, what is, in, it's slower by half a day, in other words, in what is considered fast. Slower than, than the, the prime two-day threshold. And acceptable was at about three days is now almost four days. So we asked this question you know, with, with consumers, how much would you pay for fast, like upgrade the fast shipping? This is interesting, right? So for, first off, what percentage do you guys think, I'll start with Sam, that said, you know, they would they would pay something, anything to upgrade to to a faster ship method. That's a little bit of a loaded question because I think it all depends on the type of product that you're ordering. But I'll take a stab. I'm going to say forty percent would pay more to get something faster. So I wanted to go ahead and tell you, and Cap, I want to ask you the next question here, following this. But it's actually sixty six percent that they would pay. Yeah, so more more than half, more than half. So then we asked. And you're right. It's, we asked this, this is an average across all these different product categories. And so it, it kind of breaks out. And I want to talk about that here in a second. But if you had to average out, Cap, thinking through when we ask consumers, how much would you pay, like a dollar amount, to go from what you said was acceptable, which again is right now about four days, to go to shipping at a speed that is considered fast, which again is, is 2.3 days. It's more than, you know, more than two days now. How much do you, on average, do you think consumers said that they would pay? Yeah, the actual money. Yeah, the actual money. Yeah. From four to two-ish. Yeah, yeah. A little, little more than two, actually. I'm going to come in around around 10 bucks. You're not far off. It's $11.41 on average. You know, it, it, to, to, to Sam's point, and you said this, it, it matters, right? What, what it is we're talking about, meaning the, the items. There's something about this, too, on... The if you pay for it, there's an expectation that it's it's gonna it is gonna get there, right? And and <laughs> BJ, you know you know my sad story, which I will maybe t- touch on here a bit of of my holiday perishable order that was. And I won't use any names because you know we we won't do that. But my holiday perishable order that you know had to be shipped uh, overnight next day, you know priority one. And I'm thinking, well, this is absolutely going to get here, right? Because because I I paid all this money, and of course it didn't show up, and we had pizza for Christmas Eve dinner instead, right? And so I guess I just, you know, it's it's you know when I had that experience, it was it's something I reflected on, like, is it the speed? And I know that's what we're talking about, or is it the guarantee, right, that it's going to get there? I don't know if we've done any work on that, but it was just something that it was interesting that I, as I, you know, reflected on that experience, you know, I probably would have, you know, been happy with it to be a little slower, just as if it, if I knew it was going to get there for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, you know, what's, what's in, uh, not interesting, but I guess an observation is you guys were disappointed by that experience. I got to believe the folks working at the carrier facility having to deal with with thought out crab legs was, was also <laughs> you're, you're giving it away. You're giving it away, but yes, 
<laughs> yes, somebody somebody at that facility had some nice crabs for sure, <laughs> or or had to clean up some crab uh, melted melted crab package. That's right. That's right. Yeah, for sure. No, I, so it, it is. Uh, I want to talk through these product categories because there is a difference: one in expectations on speed, and two, how much premium you place on fast delivery. Right, like the, the to, to degree fast implies a guaranteed fast, because otherwise, why pay extra if it's not not a promise of something faster? And so, when you when you guys look kind of look through the, the types of product categories, just call them out, like. Oh, Sam, I'll start with you. What are some of the product categories you feel like are the fastest and then which ones are kind of the slowest? Yeah, anything to do with personal care, personal protection, PPE, masks, sanitizers, that that stuff's got to be fast, especially today. Things like uh, shoes, clothing, accessories, eh, probably in the middle tier. I mean, people like to still feel nice and comfortable and attractive and all that when they're at home, so they don't want to wait too long. And probably when you're looking at home goods, you know, blenders, toasters, small appliances, small pieces of furniture, there's probably a, a longer lag time that they're willing to accept. And then when you get into the big ticket items, I know that, you know, we don't necessarily play in that space, but still there are items that, that do deliver. Fridges, dishwashers, show, you know, stoves, dryers, washers, people probably be willing to wait a little bit longer unless it's urgent. And then they're going to pay back to the point from earlier, they're going to pay extra money to get it shipped faster. That that's kind of where I see it. Cap, any, any any differences from that? No, look, I I think you know it, it, essential is is certainly probably the most uh, the most important. But what, one that I'll add, and maybe it's not again about speed, but it's about delivering on 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 the consistency of when it's going to be here is uh, groceries, right? Like we've been a online grocery house for. For, for way more than a decade, like, um, and there's a very good company here local to New York City that has been doing it. We've been with them from the very beginning. And when the pandemic hit, everybody all of a sudden knew about this online grocer, right? And 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 they, you know, kind of to some degree overwhelmed them. And you know, when your groceries don't show up and you got kids that got to eat. You know, it's a problem. It's it's a real problem, right? Like you count on that stuff, and you know, you don't you don't really uh, realize it until it's gone, right? And so there there was absolutely a time when you know we did we didn't have sandwich meat because you know it, it didn't show up. It got got held up, and so you know, I think the you know grocery perishable besides being fast is you know when someone says it's going to be there, it's got to be there. So so consistency is important. John, I, I want to touch on something that you mentioned earlier. You used the word guarantee. Yeah. And and I just want to double click on that because, you know, a lot of, a lot of us, and you just, you just stated it, you know, you subscribe to certain services where you have an expectation that something comes on a certain day or within a window of days every month, you know, that, that's it. We're busy, right? I, I, if I can get stuff delivered to my house, you know, guaranteed on time and, I'd rather do that than have to go to the store with, with the busy schedules we've got. But we subscribe here at home. I got a two-year-old at home. I need freaking diapers and wipes, right? So I, I did the whole thing where it's like, hey, subscribe to my monthly service and you're going to save five bucks a box. Well, dude, I hate to say this, but I had a house for a few days because my bed was going <laughs> Yeah, man. And I have to go to the store to buy... At a, at a higher price point, and then three days later, my stuff delivers, and I'm like, well, what am I going to do with this stuff? So to your point, guarantee is important for specific types of items. Grocery being one of them, I think the personal stuff for sure, and diapers, 100%. I need diapers every freaking month on time. 
period. You guys did not mention the, the number one most popular item in 2020, which was toilet paper. There you go. That is, but the, uh, diapers is pretty close, right? But yeah, so the, the numbers kind of lay out exactly as you kind of described to a degree. So grocery, the definition of fast is about 1.2 days. That's the average, right? So, so a lot more fast than other categories. The overall average being 2.3 days. You called out soap bath products. It's actually a little slower. It's, it's the average. It's at an average speed. Soap, bath products, personal care items, the 2.3 days as well. The household items and toilet paper stuff, detergent, household supplies, that's at two days. So it's significantly slower. The expectation is significantly slower than grocery. The, the, I, I think consumers are kind of imagining if it's coming from Amazon or some, somewhere further off at a warehouse, they've got a little bit more clemency. If it's coming from the grocery store down the street through Instacart or something, they're like, I, I know how long it takes to drive. Yeah, but at the same time, too, like, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not waiting until I'm down to my last roll of toilet paper to, or, to order, <laughs> you know, to order. So if I'm down to, like, you know, six, ten rolls or so, I'll order, and I'm okay with two, three days. But similar to, diapers, to, to the diapers, when I'm out of milk, I need milk tomorrow. I can't wait till next week. It's got to come tomorrow, period, right? So, I, I yeah, I agree. I think I think those numbers are, are in line with what I see in here and, and what I experience. Okay. So, Cap, you mentioned just a minute ago that your, your guess on, on the average amount consumers would be willing to pay for, for upgrading shipping. You know what's interesting is that uh, I think you mentioned $10. The $10 mark was the lowest amount on average consumer, uh, by product category that consumers would pay. The av- overall average being $11.41. The cheapest was home and garden. And that's, that's probably, I think, Sam, you pointed out just a minute ago. It's the, there's less of a sort of urgent need. It's not sometimes bulky items that you expect to come slowly. So pretty much every category sits somewhere in between $10 and the maximum, by the way, is $12.30 for vitamin supplements, nutraceuticals. That's the most premium or the, the highest that consumers would pay. And the least was for home and garden. Now, any thoughts around why those? Well, I think that the cheapest home garden makes sense, but why? Why is that like that? That band so high, right? Like it's there's not that much of a difference between ten bucks and and twelve dollars and thirty cents. You know, I guess one of the things I'm I'm wondering is I'm hearing you with these stats is I'm imagining as you're checking out, right, and you have the option of having it come as it is, right, whatever standard call it free shipping would be. But then is the idea that, you know, for 10 bucks more, or you know, you stick with my number for a minute, or I'll go with your 1140 something. If that were an option, what the stats are saying is how many people would choose that? Do we know that? Or because I do feel like I, I don't know how many people would, you know, when you actually put that dollar amount in front of them in the cart, are they going to really do that? And I'm sure every merchant wants to know that because <laughs> there used to be a time when merchants made money on shipping and handling, right? So a few still do. I don't know how much longer they're going to be around, but you know what I mean? Like, It's not a guaranteed conversion driver for sure. But the interesting thing is the, the categories where consumers said they would pay the least, that was home and garden. The other category was uh, entertainment and fitness, right? So th- those two, those two, Kind of umbrella categories they would pay the least happened to be 
where the most number of consumers said that they would pay something to upgrade. So three out of four consumers, pretty much for both those categories, said they would pay something to upgrade shipping. One, probably because their expectation is that it takes a long time. I mean, how long does it take to deliver a Peloton right now? I mentioned yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. They're willing to, willing to pay something to get it a little faster. But once you get to that point of, okay, how much would you pay? It's not that much. I think, I think there's a word that I like to use when I refer to people like my wife as an example, which is gratification. How quickly does she want to be gratified by the product that she's buying? She likes buying Lululemon stuff, for example. Sometimes she'll wait a week and go for the cheap option. And sometimes she wants to be gratified tomorrow and she will pay more. So I think that's another lens that we should think about. You got to also consider how how much is someone willing to pay to satisfy their their need to be gratified by something. And and obviously when you think about things like, you know, personal protective equipment and so on, I mean, no one is gratified by that, at least I'm not. Uh, but there's certain things that I like to buy that would gratify me. And yeah, maybe I'm willing to pay a little bit more to get it a couple of days quicker so that I could satisfy my need to be gratified. That's all. Next topic here, and Sam, this is gonna this is gonna cut close to home. You're gonna be our resident expert if you're not already. On this topic. Uh, this is about the perception that Canadians have about U.S. brands. Oh man, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, like, if, if you were to if you were just to throw some words out of like, what are the words you're hearing being said, Canadian media among friends and family, locally around? I guess U.S. culture overall, what, what are some of the words that, that you're kind of seeing tossed around? I mean, Canadians are, overall, Canadians are generally pretty nice. You think so, eh? <laughs> well, thank you for that. I guess it depends on the person in the neighborhood, but, you know. Okay, listen, it's a long question to answer. Let, let me just give you a 30-second overview of where we were and then where we are. And, you know, so pre-trade wars, everything was good. During trade wars, we all, well, not we, but there was a very negative sentiment towards the U.S. And since trade wars have gone away, the sentiment is very positive, okay? Now, I got to explain something. For those of you that are not aware, roughly 70 to 80% of the Canadian population lives within about 200 miles of the U.S. border. So, so picture, you know, a line going from Vancouver, you know, Seattle, Vancouver, all the way across to like, you know, Boston and, and, you know, the East Coast of Canada. And really, you know, 30 or so million, 28 or so million people of the 35 million that we've got live in that corridor, okay? We all see American commercials and we hear American radio stations and, and I watch American sports and, and I see American advertisements. So there's, the, there's an affinity towards American brands and American product and so on. And, and to answer your question specifically, when you ask Vijay, the words that I hear are like cheaper, i.e. from a from a dollar perspective, more selection, uh, more options, and so on. So I think the sentiment in general is very positive. You know, many Canadian cross-border consumers, in fact, you know, you know as well as I do, look at our cross-border platform. Canada is the number one market. Unfortunately, we've been in this pandemic situation, but, you know, you go to any city in Canada within that 200-mile corridor – and one of the big things is cross-border shopping, literally to the point where there are chartered bus tours that leave on a Thursday morning and come back on a Sunday night, packed 
seat to seat, elbow to elbow, to go to places like Grove City in Pennsylvania, to go to places like uh, Military Drive in, in or Military Trail in Buffalo. I mean, these are things that we do because we know that there's all kinds of product available and we're fed advertisement and communication about these products through the various media channels that we consume. Obviously, that went away, unfortunately, due to COVID and the cross-border restrictions, but we've definitely seen an uptick on cross-border online transactions. And I've definitely seen, as a Canadian, the, the sentiment ebb up and down depending on what the relationship is between our prime minister and your president. You know, thankfully, we're in a position where things have gotten much better. You know, the USMCA was signed, so it kind of eased up a lot of uh, restrictions and de minimis and fees that consumers would pay, which is a good thing. Just in case you guys are wondering, the reason the bus leaves on Thursday and comes back on Sunday is because that gives the allowable 72-hour window for a Canadian to bring back max dollars duty-free back into Canada, right? So I think it's like 750 bucks right now, maybe a little bit more. So if I leave on Thursday and come back on Sunday, I can bring back $750 worth of goods that I get to buy in the U.S. But if I go for less than 24 hours, I can bring back nothing. So so not many people do the cross-border shopping for a day trip. Literally, it's an event. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of companies here that make a lot of money organizing these trips to go to and from the U.S. to the cities I mentioned earlier. It's interesting uh, you're saying that, Sam, because I, you know, I was certainly aware of what I would call that uh, suitcase cross-border shopping, the empty suitcase, right? Phenomenon. Big with Korea, big with China, right? You know, th- those folks show up to, to a Macy's with empty suitcases and just start throwing stuff in there, right? That's right. But I, I didn't know that uh, that, that also happened uh, from Canada, too. So that was that, that's pretty interesting. Oh, it's huge, man. And, and, and if you go across the country, like where I live in Ontario, in Toronto, the big ones for us are Buffalo and Grove City. But if you make your way out, you know, west into the Alberta corridor uh, where you have Edmonton and Alberta and then all the way out west where you have uh, Vancouver, there are similar towns to, you know, Buffalo and, and, and Grove City that are set up in the same way. And in fact, John, if you go to these towns during these shopping sprees, they've got these massive signs up. Welcome, you know, to, uh, Canadian tour buses welcome. Discounts for Canadians at, you know, XYZ Motel. I mean, it's a whole industry that unfortunately has suffered now, but it has to stop people from shopping because people still recognize brand value selection and so on, and, and they, they continue to buy. So talk about the online story a little bit, right? Didn't the de minimis go up? It did. That's correct. So now people can spend more money cross-border shopping and not have to worry about paying you know, duties or taxes to a certain degree. So that's a good thing. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was at 150 Canadian now. Yeah. Before it was like 25 or $40. Maybe it was really low. It was. Yeah. Right. Now it's, now it's up to 150, which is, you know, uh, bumping up there close to AOV average, average order value for, for a lot of carts for cross border, right. Somewhere between 150, 170. And so that de minimis boosts a little bit, you know, a little bit more MV that you're not giving away in, in duties. You know, there's a flip side to it. Just, just, just a real quick sidebar. I mentioned earlier that we see a lot of U.S. advertisements, and you know, we pick up a lot of U.S. radio stations and so on. One of the drawbacks to that is that pressure on Canadian retailers. I'll give you a perfect example. So, when I'm in the market for a car, you know, actually a few a few months ago, I was looking at a Ford Explorer. I didn't buy it, but you know, I got my eye on it. Anyway, I keep seeing this commercial on uh, Fox for Lockport Gambino Ford in Buffalo. Okay. And like a, a top of the line 
Ford ST or the Street Track Edition is like forty-seven thousand dollars, forty-seven, forty-seven grand. But that's American dollars. Okay. I walk into a dealership here, and that same truck is like ninety grand Canadian. Okay. Now I get it that there's a there, you know there's a, there's a price you know there's there's an FX difference between the two countries. But I'm looking at this truck. I'm like, dude, forty-eight grand. I do the math. I go, that's not ninety grand. Like I'm getting freaking hosed over here. So. I then go to Ford and like, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I can cross the border and buy the same car for, you know, half the price. And they're like, oh, well, that's American dollars. I go, yeah, sure. But 48,000 at, you know, 125% is not 90 grand. Right. So, so it does hurt the Canadian side a little bit because of the price disparity. And I, I have no idea why things are so much more expensive here. But, you know, when you factor it in, I mean, a $48,000 truck should not cost $90,000 on this side of the border, period. But I wonder if part of that is the... The, the transportation cost of doing business in in-person business, right? Because I know looking at looking at some of the recent stats, I mean, you talked about FX, the Canadian dollar is at a three-year high. I mean, it hasn't been this strong since like 2018, the last recession. That's correct. So the buying power for Canadians has never, hasn't been this large in, in a long time. But it's, if, if you're looking at a sort of uh, in-person pricing, it factors in the cost of, Kind of bringing the goods over the border in mass and setting up shop in Canada or going through a dealership, if you will, right? I, I know, but in Oakville, which is about forty-five minutes, you know, due southwest of Toronto, there's a massive Ford plant there, and they're building the damn Explorer that I was looking at. So the damn thing's being built in Canada. I'm still paying ninety grand for it. I'm not buying it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> like a, a sign of protest. Right? <laughs> no, but I mean, like for, for online retailers, the strong Canadian dollar, the higher de minimis, and the fact that, you know, there's not as much cross-border in-person traffic, like people aren't going over the border as much to go buy goods, then it's it's got to be a net, net positive, right? It is. It is. It's a boom. Stronger buying power, higher de minimis. We see the numbers for Canada going up because of ex- everything you just mentioned, 100%. So if you guys had to guess, which so we, we went and surveyed six countries in a recent cross-border survey with BoxPool. And the, and the countries were, by the way, Canada, China, Australia, UK, France, Germany, right? So those, those are the six countries. And if you had to guess which country had the most negative perception of U.S. brands, you know, overall, the overall average is not overly negative, right? So it's about 16% of consumers overall say that they have a negative outlook on U.S. brands. 34% are saying that they've got a positive outlook and everybody else is kind of in between. If you had to guess which country had the most negative, again, of, of the six, Canada, China, Australia, U.K., France, Germany, which one would you guess had the most negative perception? I'm going to go with France. What about you, Sam? To me, it's a toss-up between Germany and the UK, but I think I'll go with the UK. It's China. China has the highest I negative. wanted to stay China, but I didn't want to be that political guy. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You're being a nice Canadian. <laughs> there you go. But you know, you know what's funny? That's the, this, not, this part's not funny. The negative perception is not necessarily funny, but the animosity and, and, and conflict or trade, trade tensions and cultural tensions, 21% of Chinese shoppers – Consumers say they've got a negative perception, so that's one in f- one in five, right? P- pretty high percentage. Thirty-two percent say they've got a positive per- uh, perception of U.S. brands. You know where Canada sits? 
Canada is almost exactly the same. It's a dead tie with, with China. It's a 20% negative perception of U.S. brands instead of the 21% at China. And the positive rate is exactly the same. Exactly the same number of consumers are positive. And, and all the European countries are way higher. I mean, what's interesting is France is actually you know, pretty high, 37% positive, only 17% negative. If you had to guess the, the most positive country in respect to U.S. brands, who would you guess out of those six? Did you say Australia? It is Australia. There you go. That, hey, that's like a multiple choice, man. <laughs> you know that Australia is like the sister country to Canada, right? It's off the charts positive. It's like half of Australians feel really positive about American brands. Canadians are saying uh, 41% of Canadians, the almost half here, are saying that U.S. goods in general are better priced. It was the, the one attribute more Canadians agreed on that one attribute than any other attribute of U.S. goods is it's, they're, they're better priced than Canadian goods. And to give up on that one value prop with an American brand, that's tough. So does that mean that you're coming across for that Explorer, Sam, or, or what? I may. I actually got a buddy that uh, went all the way to Chicago to buy a Honda S2000. And he ended up saving about 18 grand overall in the transaction, even after paying import duties to bring the car back across the border. So I'm not even kidding you. I mean, you, you asked jokingly, I'm actually serious. I may drive the Lockport Gambino Ford and buy that damn Explorer for sure. Guys, we are out of time. If anyone wants more information about the stats and, and some of the findings that we, we've been touching on here, we've got information on our website. If you go to pitneybows.com forward slash box poll, there's a ton of information and appreciate your time, guys. And we'll be back soon. Thank you, BJ. Thank you, Cap. Look forward to it, guys. It was fun. See ya.